this is Jason, and welcome to Stand By for Paradise. I jolted awake in the dark. My forehead hurt, and though I couldn't see it, there was likely a greasy, sweaty spot on the tray table folded up in front of me. I'm a tall man and can't usually sleep on planes, but I had passed straight out slumped forward against the seat in front of me. My neck ached. I was in the middle seat of five, far back in coach. I don't get claustrophobic, but on awakening, there was a sudden sharp moment of adrenaline. It took longer than felt comfortable to remember where I was and why I was on a packed plane in the darkness. We had come into rough air, and all around me you could hear the squeaking and shuddering as every seat and panel in the plane rubbed against its neighbor or tugged the bolts holding it down. Only the dim aisle lights showed the swaying heads and gripping hands on the armrests all around me. It was hot in the closely packed seats at the back of the plane. The bathrooms were closed for the turbulence, but the shaking had awakened colons throughout the plane. Sweat brought with it the unique tang of chilies and spices in the delicious East African food we had all been eating. Each sudden shock of air went into the wings and came out in gasps from men and women awake in the darkness. I had been through rough flights before, but one thing was different on this run. All around me, babies and young children were screaming. Being trapped on a flight near a crying kid is a nightmare for most travelers. This wasn't just one loud family, though. There were children everywhere. We were in the air over North Africa, and though you couldn't see it, the whole plane was filled with white parents and black children. You might call it the Adoption Express on its way back to Europe from Addis Ababa. These terrified children, many from rural villages, were going through an incomprehensible experience, and the world that waited for them at the end of this flight was likely to be no less strange. At the end of this flight, and the next one, and the one after that, I would be back in Colorado. Back there, back then, my wife was waiting. She worked for an orphan care agency, and we often talked about these kids getting a better life after they were pulled from the crippling poverty of Africa. We had not been married a year then. The novelty of sharing a bed with someone else would keep us awake long into the night. In the darkness, we would lie awake together, looking at the lines of light cast across the ceiling through the blinds. For hours, we would talk, tugging at the unsolvable knot of global poverty and dreaming about all the places we hadn't seen in the world yet. Crammed into that plane, my mind drifted back to a few days prior when I was crammed in a blue Ford truck that had trundled us all around the countryside of Ethiopia. Driving to a village outside of Addis, we had passed through a grove of dense forest quite different from the arid grasslands that had slid by the windows all morning. It was still early in the day, and as we passed through the trees, children in school uniforms kept materializing out of the woods. They all turned down the road in the same direction, heading to the local school. They live out there, one of our hosts said to us. Oh, I said naively, is there another village out there? 
Our guide turned in his seat and gave me a long look. No, they live out there. I looked again at the trees. More children joined the procession. His meaning was now clear. Even the mud houses we had seen along the road were relative luxury in this area. For some of these children, the comforts of home and family were only the faintest of dreams. On that trip, our guides would tell us about meat day in the villages. It was the day when one lone and unfortunate animal would be sacrificed so the whole community would eat the only meat they could afford. In some villages, it only happened once a year. Living in the comfortable center of North America, the efforts of relief agencies and the black and white relationship of Western resources allegedly making things better in the poor corners of the world seemed so easy to understand. Here in the Horn of Africa, I had seen more of a full picture. It wasn't that Western resources didn't help. It was just that things were more complicated. During that week, I would hear for the first time about women giving up their kids for adoption to feed their remaining children. The money for adoptions was so great, and the desire for Western couples to do their part so strong, that there was a financial incentive for parents to make the heart-wrenching decision to choose which child to give away. It was also on that trip that I would first learn about the destructive effects of urban migration. Parents desperate for work were flowing into cities all over Africa, and the children who came with them would be at the mercy of a host of new influences. Street gangs were growing. Even the kids begging and asking us to buy gum at our hotel were just workers in a highly exploitative, informal economy. I also heard the hope and the desperate pleas of local church leaders in pressed shirts sitting by the open windows of their white, stuccoed offices. Inevitably, talk of success stories would be mingled with tales of mismanagement and good intentions gone bad. They would tell us of the piles of money vanishing into the void of corruption and confusion that can accompany transnational efforts to alleviate poverty. It had been a strange week leading up to the moment I stepped back into the Lufthansa departure lounge. Suddenly plopped back into the familiar, western, nearly clinical tidiness of the lounge, I had been struck by seeing my fellow passengers. All along the wall, they were grouped in the same threes and fours. A white woman, a white man, and with them, one or two of their new, very disoriented Ethiopian children. That night was many years ago. I still think about those children, the older of whom would be adults now. Who knew the places where these kids were going? How many would be doctors, or bankers, or engineers? Life and circumstances can hold you tightly, but when you pull up the anchor, there is no telling where the winds of life will take you. I will never forget the shock many years later, when on a snowy, sleeting, stormy winter night in rural Iceland, my wife and I walked into the only lit restaurant for miles. We would have been happy with the surprisingly crave-worthy gas station sandwiches found everywhere on the island. Instead, it was an Ethiopian joint. As the door closed behind us, the Nordic night disappeared and we were swallowed in the warmth and welcoming equatorial hospitality of injera and piles of delicious meats and vegetables. The walls were filled with wooden or woven artifacts lifted from the south and carried here 
to be tucked up in one warm, bright room just under the Arctic Circle. When the food finally hit our table, I was immediately transported back to the noisy, open-air diners I had visited on the long roads outside of Addis Ababa. At the first bite, in my mind, I was ducking out of the blistering equatorial sun toward a rough table under a wide veranda, instead of hiding from the wrath of a storm filling the endless Arctic night. This comically out-of-place restaurant was run by an Icelandic man and his Ethiopian wife. They had met in Addis years ago. She talked about going back to Ethiopia and how much had changed. We all wondered at the sometimes strange and wonderful things that happen when cultures and people from far across the world find roots in new soil. Back on that dark, hot flight, I wondered if a firm hold in a new land would be the fate of these kids. What would they remember of the home they had left on that plane taking them away from everything they had ever known? How many would stay in their new countries? Which of these children, orphans in name but with living parents, would ever return to Africa? What could they have known of the paths that waited for them? For that matter, what could my wife and I have known of the path that would lie ahead of us? We thought we had so many things to anchor us back then. We could never have believed the road ahead of us would slowly become two paths. For years, we would desperately try to walk these paths together, hands held over the widening gap until souls and fingers lost touch when the gulf became too wide. None of us knew these things then, rattling along in the dark as women prayed in Amharic and babies cried their way to the promised salvation of a new life abroad. This is Stand By for Paradise, a little show made by me, Jason Fleming. You can read the full text of each episode, as well as see pictures from these stories at standbyforparadise.com. If you like the show, please share it with someone. If you love the show, you can support it on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.